just uh, some mention for... Am I on mic? Yeah, OK. Um, I, I mentioned at the beginning about the, the week of prayer and how that was put together before I... Uh, sorry, after I was uh, preparing. And uh, that talks about calling. As people were praying tonight, spoke about God dwelling, spoke about the King of Kings, spoke about the gift of redemption for each of us, a personal gift of redemption for each of us. And in testimony, God is involved in our lives. So just hold on to those things because a lot of that is in my sermon. <laughs> so God does work uh, as, as we prepare and uh, he puts us all together and we can rejoice in that. Let's have a look at Luke 24 and verses 13 to 27. which I will read out. I'll try not to speak too quickly, but I'm aware that uh, I've got fairly lengthy tonight. So 24, 13 to 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the, town, to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. I'm going to draw from a lot of uh, different verses tonight from the Bible. And I'm going to put references on the screen rather than read them all out, because otherwise there'd be constantly loads and loads of references. So it was the day of resurrection, the day when the disciples, they should have been rejoicing because all that Jesus has said had come true. He rose again and they and we have got hope. But instead, they're walking on the road to Emmaus, downcast. That is, until Jesus comes alongside and opens the scriptures to them. Now, Emmaus is about seven miles, perhaps two or three hours uh, from Jerusalem. And Jesus joins them part way, and he starts to unfold everything and explain everything to them. Until now, when he's been with them, he's spoken in parables, and he's just given glimpses of revelation. But now he explains everything in a couple of hours. Now, so I'm going to talk for a while, but it won't be for a couple of hours. <laughs> Nor will it be in as much depth as Jesus would have done on Emmaus, I can assure you of that. But sometimes we get bogged down in small details, don't we, in the challenges of life and the things that happen. Perhaps things don't turn out how we expect or how we want them to. 
we get disappointed or we get discouraged and we forget the big picture of things. A bit like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, downcast and wondering. They even said that Jesus had been seen alive. It said that in the passage. He'd risen, but they hadn't grasped it. I want to try and look at the big picture tonight. The big story that runs through the Bible. God always had a plan from the beginning. And we've always been a part of that plan. And we're a part of that story. The story that God has written and in what God's doing. Now, if you're not sure about that, just think about the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. She was a young widow who becomes a part of the lineage of Christ. She's a link between what we know as the ancient patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and King David. She carries forward God's plan. She's a part of his plan, even though she may not have realised it. She lives a simple but an obedient life. Tonight, as we've said a couple of times, it's a celebration evening. And what better way to celebrate than to remind ourselves of God's big story through the Bible? God doesn't just react to circumstances. He has a plan. Most of us know the Bible stories of Noah's Ark, Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, Moses in the bulrushes, and how he leads a nation. David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den. There are so many stories, aren't there, in the Old Testament that we know. But these stories are stories within a story. And the big story is what Jesus explained on the road to Emmaus. So in the beginning, I nearly said once upon a time, but in the beginning, God created man. He created Adam, he created Eve. And he wanted that ongoing, open relationship with them. They were the crowning glory of his, of his creation. And we still are. And after he created them, he rested. His creation was complete. He took a day off. Of course, we know what happened next, and it wasn't a surprise to God because he gave us free will, and we chose the wrong way. He wasn't going to manipulate things. He wasn't going to make us automatons. God wanted a free relationship, one based on love and trust, one that we turned away from. He wasn't going to force it. As man became more evil and walked further from God, God sent a flood. He agonised over it and he almost wiped out his creation. But through it he made a pledge to Noah, the first of a number of pledges that God would make with man as his story unfolds. His pledge was long-term and it was far-reaching. It was a promise to withhold further judgment on his first creation until his work of redemption was complete and he'd bring about a new creation. Centuries later, that promise starts to come true. It comes together with the cross and Jesus' resurrection. And then God made a promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through him. Again, it sets off a long story of faith that's fulfilled in Jesus. And through him, the curse is turned to blessing for the world. God then made a covenant with Israel who were meant to be a faithful covenant partner and a servant nation. They should have reflected God's image to the world by being holy as God is holy. Israel was entrusted with God's revelation. They were tasked to pass it on to the world, but they failed. King David was appointed by God. 
But although David was described as a man after God's own heart, the five centuries of monarchs after him were often faithless. And so the promise of Israel's king becoming the hope of the world was left in ruins. That is, until Jesus took on that role and perfectly embodied what Israel was meant to be. As fully human, he became a new Israel, obedient as a servant and faithful in partnership. Jesus, the hope of the nations and king over all. Perhaps that's an overview of what Jesus explained to his disciples as he walked with them to Emmaus. But I'll just look at those things in a little bit more detail, although I'm not going to say too much more about Adam and Eve. So the story of Noah, it starts by showing us something of the emotions of God, who becomes grief-stricken over the way that evil has spoiled his good creation. Now, I'm not going to read all of these. They're just there as prompts, so you know where we're at. Then Noah finds grace in the eyes of God and he's burdened with the secret of what God plans to do in judging the world, but also to save it. God plans to release the floodwaters to undo his creation. Now, if you remember, I know we haven't read it, but I'm sure you know that it was out of the unformed waters that the world was formed. And now they were going to be released again to cover the earth. When Lamech... That's Noah's dad, called him Noah. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us comfort from our painful toil. So at the time of his birth, he was already chosen by God to be a part of his plan of redemption. And that reminds me of Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God had a plan for Noah before he was born. And he's got a plan for each one of us too. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord amidst the dreadful evil that God was witnessing. And of course, God looks down and sees everything, even today. He saw Noah. And when he finds favour in God's eyes, the whole human race has a future. It's a strange grace when you think about it that makes you the main survivor of an environmental disaster of cosmic proportions. And it struck me as I was preparing, I thought, what if God were to tell me or you or one of us to get down to Kelvedon Hatch, down the secret nuclear bunker with our family, and then after an attack, you're the only survivor or the only group of survivors. That's what it was, wasn't it? Just that it was water. It's interesting that God shares his plan with Noah, at least to a degree. Originally, God created man to have a relationship with him, and he shares his burden with Noah. He tells him to build the ark and gives him careful instruction on how to build it. This stage of God's plan of redemption relied on Noah's obedience. Everything depends on the obedience of one man. Sounds familiar. As part of his plan, it says in Genesis 6, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. Noah's family and all of the animals enter the ark and then it says, the Lord shut them in. We hear nothing about life in the ark. We can only imagine. I don't know why the animals didn't eat each other. Don't know what it would have smelt like either to come to that. But it rained for 40 days and 40 nights 
and the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And then it says, God remembered Noah. God stood by his word, his covenant. The floods recede. Noah and his family leave the ark and God says something similar to what he said to Adam and Eve. Multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. And then God makes a remarkable statement which sort of shows a change of heart. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. God reinstates stability. In chapter 9 of Genesis, he makes a commitment to never again flood the earth. He makes a covenant with Noah and his descendants and with every living creature and even with the earth itself. He commits himself to keeping the planet in existence, maintaining its fruitfulness and its seasons. And as a sign of that covenant commitment, God puts a rainbow in the sky. A sign for us, but also a reminder for God. Because he said, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. God sees the evil in the world, but when he does, he also sees the rainbow and remembers his everlasting covenant. Jesus actually mentions Noah just once in Matthew 24. But when he did, he gave two urgent warnings. Stay awake and don't speculate. If we're not careful, we can let everyday things preoccupy us and we forget the bigger drama around us. We can fall into a sort of spiritual daydream. But then the opposite danger can be that we're taken up with speculation. In that passage in Matthew, Jesus speaks about the rapture, some being taken and others left. We often assume that those taken are the believers and those left behind are unbelievers. But actually, if we think about it in the context of the flood, those taken are those taken away by the flood in judgment, while those left behind, safe in the ark, are God's people. But whatever it is, Jesus tells us not to worry about it, just to stay alert, not to lose any sleep over it. We and all events around us are safely in God's hands. Faith walks with God into an unknown but not uncertain future, looking for the light of his son's coming. And so let's move on to Abraham and his story. His story is quite remarkable. A time when man is trying to build glory for himself by building the Tower of Babel, God calls Abraham out of a settled family life into an adventure of promise. God's working towards the building of a new people and a new city, the city of Jerusalem. And throughout the whole of the rest of the Bible, we see glimpses of a tale of two cities, Babylon and the new Jerusalem. And it starts with God's idea and the obedience of Abraham. You see, it's just a glimpse is enough for Abraham, just a glimpse of God's glory, and he responds and then leaves everything behind, going forward into the unknown, but not uncertain. He was going forward with promises, you see, the promises of God, because the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. So effectively leave everything you know and go to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. It was the complete opposite to what was happening in Babel, where man was trying to build a name for himself through his own efforts. Here was pure grace. God is saying, I will give you land. I will make your name great and make you into a nation. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Abraham's call was simply to obey. The land and so the Jewish nation was a gift from God. But there's another part to God's covenant promise to Abraham to bless all nations through him. So this connects Abraham back to Noah and to Adam. Abraham becomes the first of a new humanity, but there's a new added vital dimension because God's covenant with Noah was largely preservative. He was to rebuild the human race after the flood. But with Abraham, God is beginning to launch his plan of redemption. Because in the early part of Genesis, there are five curses mentioned. A curse on the serpent, on the ground twice, on Cain after he murdered his brother, and on Canaan. And to Abraham, God promises five blessings to make him into a great nation, to bless him, to make his name great. Bless those who bless him, and he was to bless all nations. So Abraham's call is a part of God's plan to turn worldwide curse into worldwide blessing. One of the blessings or promises to Abraham is God would make his name great, and in that culture, that would imply royal status. And just a little later in Genesis, God specifically says that kings will come from you. And that links Abraham to David and ultimately through to Jesus. God was building a nation, a people, set apart from the people of Babylon, from the ways of the world, and built on the foundation of the grace of God. But to build a nation, you need people. And like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we're all familiar with the barrenness of Sarah and their 25 years of waiting. Faith is stretched, and Abraham becomes impatient and worried that because he doesn't have a son, one of his slaves is going to inherit everything instead. So God takes him outside, shows him the stars in the sky, too numerous to count, and promises that he'll have offspring like the stars in the sky. Abraham believes the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. That's so important in the story. Righteousness in the Old Testament is relational, and it indicates a right relationship with God. Abraham had a right relationship with God because he believed him despite of his circumstance. Today we call that faith. A right relationship with God because of faith, not because of law. The law would be given later, but it was given to maintain a relationship, that relationship being built on faith. So Abraham immediately, as he did, asked about the promise of the land. Okay, you're going to give me people, what about the land? After all, you can't have a nation without land either. And God responds in what to us is a very strange way. He tells Abraham to kill three animals 
to arrange the split carcasses in two parallel lines with a bird at each end of the line. And Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And God shows him his people's slavery and release. And then God, in the form of fire, walks through the carcasses. Seems very strange to us. But in ancient ritual, both parties would normally walk between those carcasses, swearing an oath to the death to one another. But only God walks through. Why? Because God's pledge to Abraham is unconditional. He has promised Abraham unconditionally. And the nation that comes from him to be the means to bless all nations on earth. This promise of God to Abraham has sometimes been referred to as the backbone of the Bible. So Abraham and Sarah, time passes, they take things with their own hands. And Abraham is a child with Hagar. But God doesn't give up on him. He's made a promise and he's going to keep it. There are consequences, but the blessing is still there. And through the covenant and circumcision, God restates his commitment. Isaac is eventually born. And then some years later, Abraham is told to take his only son to offer him as a sacrifice. And then only for God to step in at the last moment. Abraham's faith was tested to the limit. But of course, it's also a reflection of God offering his own son on the cross. There's a hint of the gospel, telling us that God is not a God who demands sacrifices for sacrifice's sake, but a God who makes sacrifice. Our salvation doesn't depend on the sacrifice we make, but in the sacrifice we trust. In his letter to Colossians, Paul says, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done with the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it? But circumcision for Abraham was a sign of the covenant. Here, perhaps circumcision is a metaphor for crucifixion. As we put our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, we're joined to God's covenant community, his worldwide church, and we express that through the waters of baptism. The story of Abraham tells us so much about the faithfulness of God, the love of God, and the plan of redemption that God was putting in place. God's promise to Abraham stood and stands for all time. And when the Israelites are in captivity, God heard their groaning. And he chooses Moses to lead the nation forward. Moses is called from the burning bush. As I say, that's something we'll be looking at in our week of prayer. And he discovers that God is not just the God of Abraham past, but promises to be the God of now and the God who will be what he needs to be as they go forward into the future. When Moses pleads with Pharaoh to let them go, he refuses. And seven plagues are sent, with the last one being the death of the firstborn. But the firstborn of the Israelites are saved through the marking of the doorposts with the blood of a lamb. Saved through the blood of a lamb. Another marker of God's plan of redemption for the world, not just for Israel. They leave Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, which is opened for them by God, before closing again over Pharaoh's advancing forces. It's water that saves them, that separates them from what otherwise might have been. 
Of course, it was only by entering the water that it separated. They had to make the decision to obey, to step forward before the way was made clear. Noah was saved through the waters of the flood. He had to build an ark. For us, the step of baptism may in some ways be a mystery, but it's by obediently stepping forward that we realise the blessing of obedience. Sometimes we make the mistake of, of trying to compare the Old Testament God of law with the New Testament God of grace. But what has God just done? He heard their cry for help. He raised up Moses to lead them to freedom. He performed signs to break Pharaoh's resistance, brought them through the Red Sea, and then provided food and water for them in the desert before bringing them to his holy mountain. There was grace long before law. In Exodus 19, God tells Moses to say to the Israelites, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they were a people chosen by God to show the rest of the world how a people should live in relationship with God and with one another. That was God's purpose. They're meant to be a kingdom of priests, and a priest would be a mediator between God and man. But as we know, they're not very good at it. And ultimately, there's only one kingly priest, Jesus himself. What God had wanted was that Israel should reflect his image to the world, just as Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and they were meant to do. I'm sure you can see the parallels in the New Testament when Peter, in his letter, says, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The law or the Ten Commandments were given to help them to live together as community. In fact, someone has actually called them the Tender Commandments. They were given to ensure Israel's freedom in a just and equal society, the very opposite of the oppressive slave-driven regime of Egypt. Right in the beginning of creation, God created order out of chaos. And through these commandments, he was providing for order in community. God gave Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Huge details, chapters of details, and we can't hope to explore all of that. But the principle was simple. God wanted to dwell with his people. At creation, God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve until they turned away. And now God wanted to be with his people as he established their nation. Today, we don't have a tabernacle, but we have someone so much better. Holy Spirit who lives in each one of us. The tabernacle itself and the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit point towards a time when God's new creation will live with him permanently. So the history of the Israelites wasn't good. They broke covenant and they came back time and time again. Moses often pleaded with God and reminded him of his covenant promises. And God continued to show grace to a people that were not always committed to him. Israel exists only as a miracle of grace 
and the choice that God made to love, a choice made by the Lord who is faithful and who keeps covenant. And we're the same. We have that same high calling. The church isn't meant to simply replace Israel, but it's more a remade and enlarged Israel on a global scale. Isn't that what God promised Abraham? God has been building and continues to create a people out of all nations for his glory so that we can praise him together. A nation needs a king. And the king was part of God's initial covenant with Abraham when he said, I'll make nations of you and kings will come from you. Probably the best known of the kings of Israel was Saul and David. And they're best known for very different reasons. Saul was appointed when the people asked for a king. They wanted a king to be like other nations. But God didn't want a nation like other nations. They were effectively rejecting God's rule, rejecting God as king. God wanted Israel to be unlike any other nation, to be set apart for him, to be an example to other nations, and to show what it means to be a people set apart for God. So while Saul looked good on paper, unfortunately his CV, his, his, his performance didn't match his CV. But David was a man chosen by God and is described as a man after God's own heart, even though we know he was far from perfect. The story of David is long and I can only draw out a few key points of how he fits into God's story running through the Bible. I wonder at this point how far Jesus had got along the road to Emmaus with his disciples. But anyway, the appointment of David marks the rebirth of Israel as a nation in its relationship with God. When God had spoken to Moses at the Exodus, he told him to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go so that he may worship me. God had a special relationship with David. And that's often celebrated in the Psalms and in the prophets. In Psalm 89, God says, You will call to me. You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. Kings of, of ancient times, they represented God, but they also represented the people. The king's subjects were so bound up with his interest and fate that what happened to him happened to them. And so the appointment of David with his special relationship with God marks a whole new start for the nation. And in that same psalm, God says, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So at certain points through the Old Testament, God renewed his covenant. And in doing so, he also moved it on. Firstly, there was Adam, then Noah, where God's covenant was with the whole of creation. Then Abraham, where potentially it would reach all nations or peoples. After that, God covenanted with a single nation, Israel, to make them his representatives and example. And now he focuses further on one individual, David. 
who was to be his representative in leading the people. Another psalm helps us to better understand the roles of the kings of Israel. Psalm 2 was probably read at the appointment of each king, and it was also prophetic regarding Jesus and his true position as king of kings. I don't want to go too far into the New Testament because we're thinking about what Jesus may have explained to his disciples on that road to Emmaus. But in verse 7 of that psalm, God says to the king, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Not dissimilar to the earlier psalm that we read, that I mentioned, Psalm 89. And of course, we're very familiar with those same words at Jesus' baptism. There are lots of psalms that describe David as a shepherd of his people and as a priest and that promise Israel blessings if they follow their God who has promised life to them. And Psalm 110 combines the role of king and priest, which although David may have partially fulfilled, Jesus fulfills completely. God was starting to model through David what he would perfect in Jesus. So Isaiah foretells the coming of another king, one with four names. In Isaiah 8, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah's telling of a king who will take over the reign from fallible leaders, and unlike their kingdoms, his kingdom will be forever. Of course, Isaiah was a prophet and spoke of the future, but before that time came, there would be many ups and downs for the nation of Israel. There were times of great social injustice and oppression. The weak were often downtrodden. The prophets didn't make it comfortable for the kings of those days. Jeremiah, Micah, Hosea and others foresaw a day when wrongs would be righted and when the people of God would truly represent God. But they also declared judgment whilst they waited for that day. Ezekiel, another prophet, He spoke about the failings of the rulers to care for the people and he made it clear that the failings of the king reflected in the nation's destiny. The king's disloyalty to God brought ruin to the nation. In chapter 34 of Ezekiel, he talks of the failure to be shepherds of God's sheep. But he finishes by telling of a true shepherd that will come to look after God's flock as God had intended. I'm going to finish just a little bit in the New Testament. In the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her child will inherit the enduring throne and never-ending kingdom promised to David. After David, most of the kings hadn't lived up to their calling, but now God sends his son to take over and to establish his covenant as he intended it to be. Jesus was going to recover Adam's lost calling and dominion. He would retrieve that covenant with Abraham to bless the world through him. He would fulfill Israel's kingdom calling and he would redeem the office of king. He'd establish a new people out of all the earth to be his people 
and to reflect the kingdom of God to his creation. We have a high calling. In his earthly ministry, Jesus undoes the unjust acts. He sets free those that have been oppressed by the rich and powerful, those that are full of themselves. We're tasked to do the same. He comes as a shepherd, but he also comes as a great warrior. He comes to restore, but he also comes to break down. Much depends how you see him and what place he has in our lives. Luke traces Jesus' line right back through David, fulfilling his kingly call, right back to Adam, with whom God established the first covenant. And now we have the new covenant through the cross. When Jesus shared the bread and the wine with his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The Old Testament covenant that relied on sacrifices being offered on a regular basis, usually a lamb, for the forgiveness of sin. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to this new covenant. And as Jesus started his ministry, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a covenant that's open to all, just as was promised to Abraham. And Jesus leaves his disciples with that great commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So there's a story that runs through the Bible. Sometimes we lose that focus and get bogged down in the detail, but God is working his purposes out. He started his world and his relationship with us, his creation. His covenants have always been about making things new. And we're actually looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. God is still creating and making new. Paul says in his second letter to Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We don't know exactly what Jesus said to his disciples on the road to Emmaus except that he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I'm sure it was a lot clearer when he explained. But God has been working since creation to make a people that will reflect his glory to all nations. Jesus is God's crowning glory, the king who is always to come, and we're a part of the people that he has chosen to make him known across the nations. We are a new creation. Now that's something to celebrate. I just added a, a reference on the bottom there because Paul, in his letter, uh, in his sermon, rather, or speech, I think it was, in Acts, gives another very good summary, which is probably clearer than mine and much shorter. So, thank you. Let's reflect on that during the week and remember that we are God's chosen people. We need to reflect his glory.